0: Before we go into this episode, we're gonna talk a lot about training and specifically something that all women should start doing and be doing, which is weightlifting. And I get asked a lot, what shoes should I wear for weightlifting? And really you wanna be able to feel the ground as much as possible when you are lifting heavy weights because this is gonna give better sense and proprioception, better use of your muscles all the way from your feet up your chain so that you're lifting safer, you're controlling your core stability and you're understanding your body pressures. So we recommend lifting in Vivo barefoot shoes. Dom and I both do it together. And it's just so incredibly important because you're still going to go to the gym, you're not going to be able to be barefoot, right? Unless you have your own home gym, you're probably going to be in shoes. So getting something like Vivo Barefoot that allows you to have that access to the ground as much as possible while still safely protecting your foot is really important because you get that toe spread to naturally be able to use those muscles of the feet and Of course, we know that just wearing Vivo Barefoot shoes for over six months is going to help to build the strength of your feet. This is really going to support you all the way up the chain. So if you haven't gotten Vivo Barefoot or if you know you need a new pair, use code OPTIMAL at checkout and that's going to give you 15% off of your Vivo Barefoot shoes. So please use code OPTIMAL. We'll drop the link in the show notes so you can easily just go over, click over and see what shoes are available. They have some awesome ones. I love my knits. Knits, GeoRacer Knit, Primus Knit. So if you need a pair to start with, start with those and get used to your foot, feeling the ground, feeling the space between your toes and ultimately feeling better. We've had a code change. So make sure you use code TOB so that you get 15% off. That is TOB like the Optimal Body Podcast. We are so honored to have Stacy Sims back on the podcast. Now, if you remember, we did an episode with her before. That was episode 139 that you can catch this one. We are talking all about menopause. Now, Stacey is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise, nutrition, and performance specifically for women. She has directed research programs. She's really focusing on female athlete health and performance and pushing the dog to improve research on women specifically. I mean, she's done so much in her career. She wrote a book called Roar, and she did a tech Talk called Women Are Not Small Men. And she now recently came out with a book called Next Level, Your Guide to Kicking Ass, Feeling Great, and Crushing Goals Through Menopause and Beyond. And we're really going to dive in to unpack this book a little bit more. However, I really recommend going to the link in our show notes and checking out this book yourself getting it into your hands so that you can understand the science of what you need to support your body through this time. Now, she's one of the top 50 visionaries in the running industry, one of the top 40 women changing the paradigm in her field, and one of the top four visionaries in the outdoor sports industry. She has published over 70 peer-reviewed papers, several books, and is regularly featured as a speaker at professional and academic conferences, including those by USOC and USA Cycling. She currently holds a senior research associate position at Spritz AUT University, supervises PhD students, write academics papers, and is on the advisory board of some cutting edge companies. She also has her own business that she also is creating online content and really helping people to understand their physiology across a lifespan. So there's so much to learn from Stacy. We're so honored to have her back on and hope that you have your notes ready for this podcast. Stacy, thank you so much for being back on our podcast. I can't believe we get to have you back on. You just are a wealth of knowledge every single time we get to speak to you. And I know that your new book in particular, Next Level, is going to help so many women. So I'm just very, very grateful to have you back on.
2: Thank you. I'm excited to be chatting about this new book because it seems like there are so many women who need this information and when they find it, they're all excited, which makes me happy.
1: No, I think it's amazing. And it it really is going to be able to bring people to the next level, (laughs) being the title of the book, Um, which again, congrats on that. It's amazing. It's your guide to kicking ass, feeling great and crushing goals through menopause and beyond. And I think that's going to just help so many people do this. And I really love kind of where the book starts because it starts actually just explaining what menopause is and explaining the physiology of what's going on in the body. So could you give us your two-minute TED Talk on what the heck menopause is?
2: Yeah. So, um, actually menopause itself is one day on the calendar and that marks 12 months of no periods. And the period time or the time before that is perimenopause and the time after that one day is postmenopause. So when we talk about menopause itself and we hear all of the, um, symptomologies, you know, vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes, all of the things that really happens in perimenopause. And the reason for that is we're starting to have fluctuations in estrogen, progesterone. So those ratios are changing. And as they change and we become less and less, um, or producing less and less progesterone, becoming more and more estrogen dominant, and then estrogen dies off and they both flatline every system of the body is affected. It's kind of like puberty where kids are fine and then all of a sudden they're not because they have all (laughs) these hormone changes. Yeah. Well, perimenopause is the other side where all the hormones are changing and then flatlining off.
0: And in terms of now coming into this new stage and hormones are, are changing, I know there's some therapies with hormones as well. What do you recommend with hormonal therapies?
2: This is where it's interesting because there are two conversations around it. Mm. We hear a lot of people saying it's hormone replacement therapy. And that comes from more a clinical scope and a westernized idea that because we're losing our hormones, oh, we must replace them. Mm-hmm. But we know that is not necessarily a factor for replacing the hormones because there are other things that are happening. We're losing sensitivity of our estrogen receptors. We're losing um, the ability for these synthetic hormones to actually um, instigate change in our body, how our natural hormones did. The other side of the coin is a conversation of menopause hormone therapy. And this is comes from public health, this comes from um, population health research, comes from um, like more of the holistic idea of understanding that this is a natural process of aging and it can be difficult, but we can use hormone therapy to get through the worst of it in conjunction with other things. Mm. When we talk about HRT or the hormone replacement therapy, there's never the follow-on of in conjunction with other things. And this book is, is really trying to highlight there are things that you can do to be able to keep progressing in your life and not succumb to all of the negativity that's around menopause and the menopause transition without necessarily having to use synthetic hormones. Mm. It's not that you shouldn't, it's just there are some other alternatives. And if it comes to a point where your life in daily life is being interrupted to a point where you just can't live a quality of life, then that's definitely the time to reach out to your OB and say, hey, wait, I need some help. Let's look at some um, hormone therapy here.
1: I really like that answer. And I like how, I mean, you kind of point out it doesn't have to be an either or. I mean, there's there's always things that you can do to to supplement the hormone replacement therapy or taking hormones that that you have control over yourself and I'm assuming some of those things being diet, exercise, nutrition, What, what would you say are some of the main behaviors that you chat about that people can really focus on themselves?
2: It is really down to training and nutrition because when we're looking at how these hormones affect every system of the body, um, they play a significant role in everything from um, brain health and mood stability to lean mass and bone development. So if we look to external stressors to put the body under for the adaptation to give us what these hormones used to do for us then we aren't in this big drop off hole of all of a sudden not being able to build lean mass and losing bone density having mood swings so when we talk about training specifically it's a change up of what the general recommendations are and looking at how we can scope training and nutrition around training to really benefit our body to maximize adaptations and minimize these uh, menopausal transition effects
0: I mean, I I like also that you talk about menopause as, (laughs) you know, in our culture, it's usually either one, not really talked about and understood very well, especially as that one point in time, but we have to talk about what's happening in perimenopause and postmenopause, but also it has a negative stigma against the aging of it and the natural process of what is happening with menopause. Are there other cultures where it's really not (laughs) that stigmatized like this?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, the cultural aspect in the, um, in society has a big role to play in how we perceive things. We know that in Western society, aging is not viewed in a very positive manner. Mm -hmm. Um, And people don't realize that women don't age linearly like men do. So most of the aging research is based on these linear projections. But with um, perimenopause occurring, that's a definitive point where women age. And it's not well talked about in Western society, nor in Western medicine. Mm -hmm. So when someone starts having signs and symptoms, they're often told, oh, it's because you're so stressed and you need to do this and this, or they're put on the antidepressant but we look at other cultures especially like asian cultures and in particular japan there is not a word for hot flash in japanese Mm. because it's a natural progression of aging and it's not there's not a negative Um, connotation around aging in a lot of those cultures. So as a woman ages and as a man ages, they're revered for their experience and their knowledge. And so as they're going through the menopause transition, sure, they might have hot flashes, but they don't perceive it as being as severe because there hasn't been this negative connotation. So there's this huge psychological component about the severity of the symptoms And we see them much more severe, especially in Western medicine and in the U.S., where we're so pharmaceutically driven that when we start talking about menopause and the symptomology around it, everyone's like, oh, you've got to take something for it. Mm -hmm. Instead Mm -hmm. of saying, hey, this is a part of aging, there's all these things that we can do, so let's explore and experiment and let's see how we're embracing this change because it is a new change, your body's undergoing it, and it's the beginning of the rest of your life and it's not a negative thing it's just something that happens
1: mm. oh yeah i love that and i think that I, I saw a post on your page that had gone up that said menopause is the birthday of the rest of your life and i kind of yeah. got a flashback of you saying that right there yeah. and, and i think that's a beautiful way of thinking of it and it kind of i don't know where this western need in culture came to really start covering up all of these natural things that happen in our life and all these natural progressions rather than what you just said learning through them and learning about what's going on with our body and how can we optimize our health and how we feel uh, through this rather than trying to cover up and fight this this natural progression. I, I think that's that's so odd that that's kind of our nature in Western society. So, um, I wanted to ask about, so often our, our body is going through almost a, a stressful change and there's there's stress going on in our body regardless of good or bad or how we're viewing it. Is exercise going to put more stress on the body during this time?
2: See, this is the thing where we see a lot of the chatter where women who are perimenopausal shouldn't do high-intensity work. They shouldn't do anything that's super stressful because you don't want to elevate cortisol more than it already is. Yes, we are going to see women who have a higher baseline of cortisol and more sympathetically driven because of the fact that estrogen and progesterone, progesterone, play on neurotransmitters, as well as the autonomic nervous system. But the follow through on that conversation of doing intensity is that the growth hormone response and the anti-inflammatory anti responses that come after a very hard sprint interval training session or heavy lifting session helps drop baseline cortisol. It doesn't rise, And that's the follow through that is not happening in a lot of the conversations around exercise and menopause because i see a lot of these posts and i see articles and other people are saying you know they're experts in menopause follow me training you that kind of stuff we're going to do lots of low intensity body weight resistance stuff and keep intensity down and that is not what someone should be doing because it's not a strong enough stress to invoke the change that people want
0: that is so fascinating because I, I do feel like that's such a natural shift that starts to happen. It's more yoga, it's more Pilates, it's less lifting, it's less intensity. And 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 I think a lot of people as they age, they're afraid of higher intensity because of a lot of joint stress. So how do you mm-hmm. recommend people starting to say, okay, it's okay to have this the, these higher bouts of intensity, especially with with heavier weights, I think so many women as we age are so afraid of injury, so afraid of pain, that it's almost like, well, if I'm going to keep moving, I'm just going to do yoga and Pilates. So how do you kind of approach it with that aspect?
2: Oh, I acknowledge the fact that people are having more joint pain and more predisposed to soft tissue injuries at this point, Mm -hmm. because of estrogen and estrogen going down and how vital it is for soft tissue and mobility. So when I tell people, um, you know, we want you to start heavy lifting. I'm not going to throw them in the deep end and say, "Hey, here, let's deadlift uh, 200 pounds." (laughs) Yeah, we want, yeah, we want to phase them in and make sure that they have a really good mechanics, which is kind of where you guys come in, where (laughs) you're working on mechanics and range of motion and movement and all the specificity. And I want people to understand that that is vital before they get in to do heavy lifting. And what's heavy to me might not be, or what's heavy to me might be too heavy for someone or might not be heavy for someone. So it's all relative. And after you go through a couple of weeks, maybe even a month of mobility work, functionality, seeing good mechanics, learning how to lift properly, then we start adding load. But for women who are afraid of adding load and afraid of lifting heavy, it could be a three-month process to get into the point where the body can actually lift heavy, so I I want people to understand that yes, there are points where we know that there are joint pain and soft tissue pain, but we also know that be, by doing heavy lifting and resistance training, you're strengthening the muscle and the tendons and ligaments around the joints, which helps alleviate that pain. But there is this time and a point through that we have to work on mechanics, and not to be afraid of using something like knee sleeves or um, looking at, at using KT tape to support the joint that might be a little bit unstable or a bit sore. Mm-hmm. Because this is this point where, yes, the tendons and the ligaments and the muscles and the joints are all going through this change as well.
1: And I mean, y- you point to how we, you know, work with a lot of people in pain. It, it's kind of that counterintuitive thing where if you, if you think it's going to cause pain or the more intensity I do, the more pain I'm going to be in. When you have kind of like you said, that proper progression, which sometimes may take a month, two months, six months, it inevitably will help you become more resilient and will help those pains down the road or will help you. And it
0: never ends. Like you're always going to do
2: mobility. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. And I think people often get in the mindset, this is a quick fix. Yeah. Um, And the science that we're offering in this book, it's not a quick fix. It's a reevaluation of where you are in your life to be able to progress through life and maintain a very healthy, mobile life. And we say it's performance lifestyle. So are you training for an event? Maybe, maybe not. And that's not where we're not after the athletes. We're after active women who want to have a performance lifestyle, be able to take on stress, be it life stress, exercise stress, whatever it is, and be very resilient to that. Mm. So that's the other um, part of the conversation. I think that gets lost. It's it's not a quick fix just to get through menopause. It is a lifestyle change to enable you to progress through perimenopause into postmenopause and keep progressing as you get older and have a very good quality of life as you age.
0: I mean, that is so huge. And when it comes to cardio, I mean, so we've mentioned the resistance training. I mean, I guess I have a couple questions around this. What does cardio start to look like when you're going into perimenopause? is it is it steady state cardio is it that high intensity interval cardio what changes would that make as you start to step into this and then how often do you want to hit that kind of that level of intensity
2: we want people to understand what polarized training is so you're going to do some sprint and high intensity interval training and when we talk about that I don't know if a lot of people understand what that means. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a 45-minute Orange Theory or Boot Camp or F45, whatever kind of class. I'm talking about a 15-minute where you have a five or so-minute warm-up. And then for sprint interval training, you're doing 20 seconds as hard as you can so that you're really looking for to the minute off or the minute 20 off and then you do it again. So it is full gas. It is a rating of perceived exertion of 9 or 10 on that scale of 1 to 10. We talk about high intensity interval training. It's a little bit longer and it's more about metabolic change. It's, you know, two minutes of intensity with a little bit of a shorter rest period. The sprint interval training is about threshold and epigenetic changes within the muscle for more insulin um, sensitivity and being able to use carbohydrate better the high intensity interval training is to help stimulate changes so that you're not storing visceral abdominal fat so that you are encouraging uh, lean mass development Mm -hmm. so there are two different aspects And we can't do high intensity every day. Otherwise, we aren't actually truly doing high intensity. So we might do sprint interval training three times a week or sprint and hit interval training three times a week. And then if you are someone who is a cardio junkie and you love the long, slow stuff, there's a time and a place for that, but it's not the bread and butter. And the reason for that is there are sex differences from birth where we know that women are more they do better in power-based training. And we have proteins within our mitochondria that already encourage fatty acid utilization and encourage more fatty acid utilization than men. And of course, as we hit puberty and get epigenetic exposure to our sex hormones, there's some further changes. So as those hormones drop off, we still have this baseline of being able to go long and slow. And the recommendations of 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity is not appropriate for women in this life life mm. stage because that moderate intensity stuff is what drives cortisol up, what keeps mm. sympathetic drive. You need mm. to really polarize it to be able to get that really high, high stress from the high end cardiovascular work. To cause those epigenetic changes, to cause a stress, your body adapts. And you want that really low, low stuff for full recovery. I have people wear heart rate monitors for the low end, not the high end, because people end up going too hard when they're doing the low end and end up mm. in that moderate intensity zone.
1: Yeah, I think that's so important. And I love the kind of that polar training or that bipolar training where you really need to hit the mm-hmm. ends and, and sticking in the middle or that steady state stuff is actually what, what might drive that stress or cortisol level up. Um, you kind of mentioned briefly belly fat or the <laughs> body fat. And it's a huge I, topic. I know. And I know there can yeah, be a very huge topic. common complaint or thing that people start bringing up. Well, I just feel like I have put on this extra 5, 10, whatever pounds of belly fat. And no matter what I do, I can't get I can't make any ground there. Like, what would you say to those people?
2: I try to unpack it because at this point, when we have a greater resting uh, level of cortisol, of course, the signal is to put on more body fat and to break down lean mass. I also want to understand how they are eating Mm. because unfortunately, the automatic response when people start putting weight on is they need to train more and eat less. And when they do that and they're not timing their food around their training, they stay in this breakdown state which signals the body to keep burning lean mass and use amino acids and store fat. So we really have to look at how they're eating and the timing of what they're eating. And we also know that using... Around 90 calories of protein before resistance training boosts the adaptation and also boosts resting metabolic rate post exercise more so than if you were to have just about a carbohydrate beforehand. So it becomes important the amount of protein and the timing of the protein as well. So when someone's like, I got squishy overnight, I put on five, 10 pounds of fat and I can't get it off, I always try to unpack it first and go, okay, well, first let's see how you're eating and what you're eating and how you're training. Because again, like I said, most women will put themselves in that moderate intensity zone for quote calorie burn and not eat appropriately, which is a combination that encourages that fat gain.
0: Oh yeah. I mean so incredibly important here. And when we're we're talking about the spectrum now of nutrition, how does someone kind of start to set up their day to start to look at it a little bit differently? Starting with the morning and you know, usually it's when we think of breakfast, a lot of times it's it's sweet, it's oatmeal, it's pancakes, it's waffles, it's something a little bit sweeter. And I know that can jumpstart <laughs> into a, a spiral down the, down the rest of the day. How do you recommend someone kind of sets up their day and then what does it look like going forward?
2: We know that when women eat protein first thing in the morning, It feeds forward in the fact that it helps with metabolism. It reduces the cravings for sweets later in the day. But the other thing in the menopause transition perimenopause is we are becoming more insulin resistant. So if someone loves oatmeal and waffles and pancakes, I look for alternatives like protein pancakes or, you know, adding extra protein to the stuff they're eating. So instead of a big bowl of oatmeal might be half of the normal amount of oatmeal mixed with egg whites and topped with seeds and nuts so that they're getting a good amount of carbohydrate that's balanced out with a protein and that mm. feeds forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, it's those nuances of what are people not willing to give up because a lot of the cultural nuances that we have around food are so ingrained that, you know, comfort food and things we have for breakfast, because it's easy, it's trying to work with the person. But the general scope that we think about is we need to look at the kinds of carbohydrates that we're eating because of this increased insulin resistance, and we need to take care of our gut. So when we're looking at what kinds of carbohydrates, it's fruit and veg, it's whole grains. You want to pepper it through the day. And protein becomes so incredibly important where we're looking at 25 or 30 grams at each meal and trying to have a regular doses throughout the day. And it might sound like a lot of protein. I mean, I've gotten pushback on the recommendations within the book, um, but they're science-based because when we look at the general recommendations for women, they're based on sedentary older men which mm. does not compute to active women. Yeah. And then we also have the anabolic resistance that's coming with age as well as the change of hormones because estrogen is our primary uh, anabolic hormone. So we have to look at encouraging the body to be in a positive am- amino acid state so that we can keep progressing with muscle protein synthesis as well as have amino acids available for the other things our body uses amino acids for. So, protein becomes paramount.
1: No, I th- thanks for that rundown. And I think that's one thing that, another thing I love that, that I see you saying often is, women are not just small men. And especially right. like you just said, active women are not older sedentary men. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll take it that next step further. Um, I, I know that especially around this time of menopause and post-menopause, some women might be looking into doing more of an intermittent fasting-style diet? And what, what would you say to those people?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, my stance on intermittent fasting and keto hasn't changed. It's the same, and it's really, really super important for people to understand at this point their body is under stress. And when you look at intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, it's a way of increasing stress on the body. We know from sex differences at birth that women do better Through exercise in a fed state. That doesn't mean a full meal right before you do something. It could be 100, 150 calories, primarily protein with a little carbohydrate, but it's to boost blood sugar because the way that women fuel for exercise is we clear out blood sugar and then we tap into fatty acids, but you need some carbohydrate to tap into fatty acids. So if you go into your training session fasted or in a fasted state, You can't really access those fatty acids very well without breaking down something. And that something that gets broken down is your lean mass. It frees amino acids because amino acids have a a response with glucose where if there isn't glucose, amino acids can come over and take the place. So when we're talking about why are you training, you want to get body composition change, you want to get healthy, then you need some fuel. So, intermittent fasting, when we look at the data of intermittent fasting, sweet if you're sedentary and you're trying to get healthy and you're trying to lose weight. Yes, it can work. But for active women, no. We know that the exercise data for longevity is way stronger for active women with regards to telomere length and clarity and focus and all the things that are purported with intermittent fasting. We also know from recent research, that calorie restriction is a way better way of being able to manipulate body composition than intermittent fasting. So when we scope it, it's like fuel for what you are doing and then to further enhance body fat loss, it's a small calorie restriction far away from training. And this allows you to feel better because you're fueling for the stress that the day throws to you and you're also taking control and manipulating your body composition by not having a bedtime snack, which is not that difficult. It goes better, it feels better, and it's easier to stick to.
0: Mm. I think that's so incredibly important because I know, as again, coming into perimenopause, and there's so many changes, and people feel like they're holding onto fat. You know, they're trying all these different diets and trying all the different trends and maybe I just won't eat in the morning and you know and and trying to do whatever they can that they see available in order to help this but I love that you're saying no we actually get to eat and yes you could be in that calorie uh, calorie restriction overall throughout the day however you're still fueling yourself throughout the day, especially for the activity that you need to be doing. And I love also, you have a chapter in your book called Eat Enough. (laughs) And I think that's so important.
2: Yes, there's so many women who don't eat enough. And um, I can't tell you how many women go, Oh, I'm tracking my macros and I sit around 1300 calories a day or, you know, on the low range. And I was like, Oh my gosh, how do you even get up in the morning? Yeah. (laughs) Cause that's Hmm. not even enough for like your resting metabolic rate. And they're adamant that if they eat more, they put on fat. I was like, Well, no. What happens is you start storing more water and you start storing a little bit more carbohydrate. And then your body's like, Ah, uh, okay. Now I can let go of it. It might be two months down the line, but there's a transient point. And I'm not telling people that you have to add a thousand calories right away. Just like with physical activity where you phase it in, you gradually increase your calorie count content from a day-to-day perspective, but always in and around training because that's where your body needs it. Mm-hmm. So it's so interesting And I blame the 1980s with their fat-free and their Jane Fonda calorie-in, calorie-out (laughs) fat-burning ideas of how this mentality has occurred, where women are always told they need to be smaller and they shouldn't be taking up too much room and you need to eat less, you need to become tiny. And it's not true. Women need to eat more and they need to take up the space that they belong and deserve and fuel their bodies to be healthy and strong and just really own that idea.
0: Yes, mm. strength too. I think that is just something that, that women are so afraid of. And I know that you have strength loss already as we age. So, you know, being afraid to lift heavier and, and load the body and put on some resistance, it's it's sad. So And I guess the other question in that too is, can we mitigate those changes that happen through natural strength loss and, and muscle atrophy,
2: yeah, for the aspect for people to understand here is when we 're looking at estrogen, and as I said earlier, estrogen is the women 's anabolic hormone, and it is directly tied to the satellite cells of of your muscles, especially myosin, as myosin and actin are the two proteins for muscle contraction. So what we want to do with the heavy lifting aspect is we want a more neuromuscular connection so that we can recruit more fibers for every muscle contraction to get a very strong, powerful contraction. And that stress of that heavy lifting encourages maintaining the lean mass we have, but also encourages the synthesis of more. But knowing that without estrogen, we've lost one of the primary pathways for muscle protein synthesis. So we have three primary pathways. We have IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1, that is mitigated by estradiol, our primary female estrogen. We have physical activity or mechanical stress, and we have amino acids. So for lifting heavy and getting that neuromuscular stimulus, we also have to follow it up again with a good dose of amino acids to get the synthesis aspect going, not just the neuromuscular connection, but the actual synthesis to be able to maintain strength, build strength, and build lean mass. So this is where really taking an eye to resistance training and what you're doing, that 8 to 15 rep range doesn't do that. It mm. breaks down muscle because it's hypertrophy, but it doesn't signal your body to improve strength, nor does it improve the quality of the lean mass that you have.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. And a thing that I kind of want to tack onto this, I think is another paramount topic as women age is, is bone density. And does this type of training also benefit bone density? And is there anything else that women can do as we're going through this stage and beyond for their bone density?
2: Yeah, you know, we lose uh, one fourth of our bone mass after the onset of, of menopause. So in the perimenopause, it's really important to try to maximize um, bone remodeling and things like typical weight bearing, runnings, that kind of stuff doesn't work. So plyometric work, definitely yeah. jump training, 10 minutes of jump rope and, and counter movement jump three times a week. That is enough to um, build bone in women who are perimenopausal. It's that multidirectional stress that we're after to really stimulate bone remodeling. Because again, estrogen and progesterone are tightly tied to bone mineral density. And when we start losing those, we have to look for those external stressors. The plyometric work again works with more of that epigenetic aspect of changing things in the muscle and in the bone to encourage stronger development. And when we're looking at counter movement jump or the multi directional stress, where it's putting stress through different planes within the bone, that again signals oh, we need to be strong here. So it is important to add some jump training in.
0: Oh, that's so huge. And I, and I hope that through people listening to this as well, you're just encouraging them a little bit more as to why these things are important and the empowerment of starting to step in. Because I know it could be scary if you haven't done some plyometric training. There are ways to progress into it. And if you have a good coach, a good trainer, good therapist with you, there are ways that you can start to build on these things so you can get back to you know, the type of training that really supports your body that you talk about all throughout this book, which if anyone is going into perimenopause in postmenopause, anyone (laughs) needs to get this book or get it for uh, someone in your life that you know is going through this because it's so, you have so much knowledge, so much education throughout this book and and I know you go through this in more detail as well as in, in terms of supplements, but in general, are there supplements during this time that really kind of support the body that you in general can kind of recommend?
2: The first and foremost is creatine. Mm. I mean, it is it is so essential for women at any age. Uh, just a couple of months ago, who put it on uh, the list of essential nutrients for women? But when we're looking at perimenopause um, and the sympathetic drive and the fast energetics that our body is going through, through all the different changes, creatine gets used quite a bit. And I'm not talking about the 20 gram loading that you have in the bodybuilding sets and all the side effects of weight gain and water retention. It's three to five grams, so half to a full teaspoon of creatine. You can stir it into your coffee if you want to, but just a very small dose of creatine every day boost your levels. And we already have 70% less than men. And it's important for things like gut integrity. It's important for our brain health. It's important for heart. All those fast energetics in the body benefit from creatine. Mm -hmm. So that is the, the, the one that I tell every woman to take. And then for women who are like, oh, well, I'm looking for alternatives to, um, MHT, we can talk about adaptogens, but that becomes more individualistic. When we start looking at phytochemicals to support the body and try to mitigate individual symptoms, then that's where adaptogens can come into play.
1: Mm, I think that's so important. It's so interesting because I guess just, I, I'm glad that you mentioned how creatine, it's like big in the bodybuilding community. And I think that's what a lot of people might think of at first, but just how important that can be in the population of perimenopause, menopausal, postmenopausal well, and for women. For your
0: brain, for your, you yeah, know, for your gut health, like for everything.
1: <laughs> everything that it does yeah. in the body and how important that can be.
2: Yeah, and I mean creatine with omega-3s is used for um, you know, concussion recovery. <clears throat> and we're also seeing the correlation of long COVID to TBI. So people who are using creatine and omega-3s, they're actually dampening the inflammatory um, responses within the brain tissue itself mm-hmm. creatine is really important for that and so are omega-3s and when we look at the increased systemic inflammation that women have in perimenopause of course the brain is going to suffer as well so it's another reason why creatine is so important at this point in time when we're talking about brain health and eliminating brain fog and getting a handle on on mood swings and the anxiety that comes with this time
0: mm-hmm. I mean all of this so incredibly important. I hope, again, that people are just taking this in and going and grabbing next level so that they continue to dive in, really understand it, have it accessible. I mean, that's what's so great about your book, Stacey, is that you not only put the education and the research behind it, but you, you give the tools and the resources for what people can do now to start feeling better within their body and and why that is so important i think understanding the why behind a lot will help you to feel empowered to actually start doing it maybe start putting a little bit of jumping and plyometric training and some higher, higher intensity sprints like getting people back to being that athletic person and and doing that type of training as we start as we continue to age is just so incredibly important and not being afraid of it and then using your nutrition to support it. I mean, all that you talk about, it's just so incredibly helpful and you guys can also go back and listen to our other episode that we did with Stacy. That was episode 139 where we really went from like puberty to, to, the, to the end stage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. and we talked about the whole spectrum, you know, of nutrition and training and how that changes through different stages of life. But you really, you're you're bringing so much wealth to women and research and education so that we can actually understand our bodies since it's different than men's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so- That's <Yes>, true.
1: <laughs> true, true.
0: I just, again- Just so, so appreciate you. Where could people go pick up this book, learn more from you?
2: On our website, we have a Next Level um, page, and it has additional resources too, because it was so full of references that we put more, um, well, we didn't get to put them all in the book. So (laughs) we have more references on the Next Level page, as well as resources. Another one that comes up a lot is Pelvic floor health so we have additional mm-hmm. resources on that um and you can buy the book through the website you can go to amazon you can go to barnes and nobles There's small local distributors as well so check your local bookstore first um before you buy from the big distributors because i want to be able to support as many local mm-hmm. shops as possible mm-hmm. um and then you can keep up with all of our stuff um on drstacysims.com and of course social media uh we are getting ready to launch some um small courses called micro that does a deep dive in a lot of the things that I get questions about. Amazing. So, um, I think that's, that's pretty much us.
1: Yeah, Incredible. Well, thank you so much. We'll have the next level website linked up below. If you don't make it into your local small bookstore, yeah. um, check there first, but Stacy, thank you so much for being on. We always appreciate getting to chat with you.
2: Thanks again for having me. And, you know, it's really refreshing when we have guys involved in the conversation too. So thank you very much.
1: <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> As always, another incredible interview with Dr. Stacy Sims. Thanks for sticking around to the end. If you've been loving these episodes, please consider going to your favorite podcasting platform leaving us a rating and review, sharing this out with any friend who you think might benefit. That's how this podcast is just going to continue to get seen by more people. Remember, there's that code OPTIMAL for 15% off Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They have a 100-day risk-free trial. So if you're not completely convinced, you can always ship them right back. But I doubt that'll happen because it is an amazing piece of footwear to add into your daily life. Thanks for being a fan of the Optimal Body Podcast. And of course, we will see you next time.